0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: The November 1976 issue of Playboy appeared the day before the first presidential debate. In the soft focus cover shot, Patty McGuire is unbuttoning her shirt. But for once, it was the accompanying text that aroused most attention. In bright yellow caps, the headline read Jimmy Carter on Politics, Religion and Sex. In the interview, the Democratic candidate, a Sunday school teacher in his spare time, confessed to ogling women who weren't his wife. I've committed adultery in my heart many times, he said. Carter's Republican opponents delighted at the bizarre confession. I'm glad he's not teaching Sunday school to my grandchildren a stern letter to the St. Petersburg Times read. Carter's poll numbers drooped, but he survived the debates and went on to win the election. Patty Maguire married Jimmy Connors, the bad boy of American tennis, and after 67 good years, it was Covid that killed Playboy magazine. The final issue came out in March. In truth, it had never recovered the vigour of the Carter era. But in nearly upending the 1976 election, Playboy wrote one of the more salacious chapters in the saga of American politics and religion. This is checks and balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how is the balance between religion and politics in America changing? America has been debating how to separate religion and government from the get-go. While faithlessness is rising, defenders of religious rights now have a champion in the Supreme Court. Recent ruling lifting COVID restrictions on places of worship made that clear. The court's realignment may be Donald Trump's most enduring legacy. How are the politics of church and state shifting? In this episode, we'll speak to a leading Christian conservative commentator, Find out why the French president picked a fight with America's media over secularism and ask how Joe Biden will navigate this tricky territory. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, the Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fassman, the Washington correspondent, Charlotte, we've been colleagues for a really long time, more than a decade, but I've only just discovered that you used to sing in a choir in New York next to an opera singer.
2: (laughs) These are the fascinating pieces of information that you learn over time. Um, Yeah, I was really lucky growing up. I lived near a great church that had a very vibrant choir that was 70% professional singers and 30% people like me trying to follow along. But it was great. We got to learn a new piece of really beautiful classical music each week. And uh, it was a very special thing to, to do as a child.
3: John, if I sang in a choir, it would empty the pews pretty quickly. How about you? <laughs> uh, yeah, singing is not my strong suit. I think it's to the good of all of my fellow Jews that I never sang in a choir in anyone's presence.
2: Fasman how were your quails?
3: The quails turned out to be just absolutely delicious. Um, I got very lucky. I marinated them in some dark soy sauce and Shaoxing wine and light soy sauce and five spice powder and then wrapped them in bacon and blasted them in a hot smoker for about 15 minutes and they were perfect.
2: You know, I'm really glad to hear that description because last week you said, you know, we're just doing something modest. We're going to make marinated quail and wrapped in bacon. And it was like the Oxford English Dictionary's definition of a humble brag. And I'm much more comfortable (laughs) with a uh, full on brag that what I cooked was perfect. This is good.
3: It's a full on brag. It was really good. Yeah. My son ate, I think, five birds in a space of 18 hours. Charlotte, how was your
1: foray into the kitchen for Thanksgiving?
2: Limited, but successful. That's how I like it.
1: The the takeout did its job. (laughs) Exactly. Well, We're going to be talking about religion and politics in this episode. Just before Thanksgiving, the Supreme Court ruled against the governor of New York, who was trying to limit the number of people allowed to congregate in places of worship because of the pandemic. The court judged that the restrictions were too severe The court seems to have tipped further towards protecting religious freedoms, thanks to Donald Trump's most recent appointment, Amy Coney Barrett. David French is a prominent Christian conservative commentator and a supporter of Justice Barrett's. He's senior editor at The Dispatch and author of a new book on political polarization in America called Divided We Fall.
4: For months before this moment, religious liberty challenges had wound their way up through the federal court system. And in two of them had gotten to the Supreme Court of the United States. In both circumstances, a California case and a case out in Nevada, had there not been a pandemic, these kinds of regulations that were being challenged, that limited attendance at worship services, would have been easily struck down as unconstitutional. But the question was, how much does the pandemic adjust basic constitutional law doctrine it was a big deal because this was the first case to overturn these state pandemic regulations to withdraw deference from state authorities in the course of the pandemic and that's why it ignited such a firestorm
1: and david you've in a previous life brought religious freedom cases yourself yes can we rewind a little bit i mean i tend to think of america as a country where religious freedoms are understood in pretty ample terms. And yet the fact that there are so many of these cases where the lawyers arguing for a more expansive understanding of religious freedom have won suggests that there was a moment in American history at some point in the 20th century when religious freedom, broadly understood, became constricted. So can you tell me about that moment, sort of what
4: happened and why? I think we have to draw a distinction between religious liberty which is the right that I exercise to protect myself against power versus religious power. For a very long time in American politics, Protestant American Christianity sort of had an enormous amount of power in American politics. The apex of it would have been prohibition, where consumption of alcohol was prohibited in the United States of America. At the same time, they were also passing in state constitutions something called a Blaine Amendment, which were very anti-Catholic, designed to hamstring Catholic schooling. And what has happened really over, I would say, the last 60 years of American constitutional and political life is we have seen less religious power, that Protestant establishment has been diminished in authority, but more religious liberty in that when the power turns against them, they can fend it off in court. And so th- this is one of the reasons why you've seen a rise in religious liberty cases brought to the Supreme Court. How does that
1: change politics? I mean, America is still much more um, religious and much more religiously observant than France, than Britain, say. But the trends are pointing towards, if not quite a convergence, you know, America becoming less of an outlier. How does that change politics? politics as
4: Christians in America lose numerical power and sort of formal political power. Yeah, it, it polarizes our politics. And, and here's why. I, I think secularization in America is often misunderstood. It is not a uniform process. So what you're seeing is a dramatic increase in, in what we call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who have no particular religious affiliation, a pretty dramatic decrease in sort of what you might call the nominals. In other words, people who are nom- have been nominally affiliated with religion, but a remarkable resilience and a remarkable staying power amongst evangelicals. So what's happening is the United States is remaining very religious in many ways and also becoming more secular. And then when you overlay this on the fact that this is not happening in a uniform geographic pattern in the United States, It's really enhancing polarization so that the most red states in the United States, not all of them, but most of them also are among the most high church-attending states. And many of the most blue states in America, not all of them, but again, many of them are among the least church-attending states. So you're going to have a political clash that is overlaid with a religious clash. You don't have to be that much of a student of history to know that that has potential To be quite volatile.
1: John, there's been so much going on in American politics in the past couple of weeks that some of our listeners may not have paid due attention to this case that went to the Supreme Court, um, pitting Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, his administration against the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and a big synagogue in New York. Can you explain what this
3: case was about and why it was so important? Yeah. So essentially, Governor Cuomo issued restrictions on the number of people permitted to attend religious services in areas where coronavirus was spiking. So a lawsuit was brought by the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and by Agadath Israel, which is an organization for very orthodox Jews. And the case went up to the Supreme Court, and the court had previously upheld those restrictions, I believe. And then it ruled in this case that they were unduly restrictive, that because attendance restrictions were made on religious organizations, on churches and synagogues, but not department stores, other other places of business, that it, it singled out religion in a way that the First Amendment does not allow. The case was 5-4. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts joined the court's three liberals and Justice Barrett issued what turned out to be the deciding vote. I'm not sure if she wrote, so the the court's opinion, the per curiam opinion, was unsigned. I'm not sure if she wrote that. Gorsuch, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh issued concurrences, so it wasn't either of them, but she seems to have been the deciding vote in this case. And I have to say, I'm, you know, just to put my cards on the table, I am not a religious person myself. I'm, I'm Jewish, but I don't practice any religion in general. I favor minimal religious presence in the public sphere. But this case seems to be pretty correctly decided. I think if Governor Cuomo had issued attendance restrictions on all businesses, that would have been one thing. But he really does seem to have singled out religious practices in a way that runs contrary to the spirit of the First Amendment.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that entirely. It didn't seem like such a hard case for the Supreme Court to me. And I was surprised that John Roberts dissented from it. I mean, it it seems to me that these religious liberty cases, when they just pit church against state in this way, um, the authority of state over church, they're more straightforward. And it's kind of unsurprising that the Supreme Court finds the way it does. I think they get much harder when a church or a religious organisation is claiming the right to discriminate on some grounds against some group of people for religious reasons. And you know, if you look at the really difficult Supreme Court cases over the past few years, you know, Burwell v Hobby Lobby, um, Masterpiece Cake Shop v Colorado, aka gay, the gay wedding cake case, those cases have pitted you know one set of liberties against another set. And and those seem much harder to me. Charlotte, what did you make of this case?
2: I think that your point on religious cases in which religious liberty is pitted against another right is really important. I was really interested in David French's explanation of the history of religious liberty and religious power, because I think now one can make the claim that Religious liberty can become a form of power over another group when there are instances in which the defense of religious liberty, the defense of an individual's right to individual freedom and religious freedom becomes a form of power over another group, whether that is through preventing access to contraception. Some of the cases in recent years have concerned whether employers or religious institutions can refuse to grant access to certain medical services, including contraception. The defense of religious liberty can be used as a form of power in preventing an individual's right to marriage. I mean, I think that that is the real conflict here, where you see religious liberty being used as a new form of wielding power.
3: Or as perhaps as an affirmative wielding of power, where in the past, that level of power was sort of implicit, right? When America was was for a long time was de facto Protestant, even if it wasn't, you know, Protestant by statute. The sort of levers of power were held by Protestants, the culture was Protestant, that started crumbling, I think, during the large wave of Catholic and Jewish immigration. Now America is wrestling with the extent and the place of of religious expression in a public sphere, when not everybody shares the same religion, and there's not that same baseline there. I think that's exactly right.
1: And I think that's where David's distinction between religious power and religious liberty is really helpful. I mean, as you say, John, if you were a Protestant in America in the 1950s, you didn't have to worry too much about religious liberty, because your values were sort of baked into the society all around you. It's only when Protestants in particular, start losing some of that political power. And you know, making an alliance with Catholics, a group that previously a lot of you know white mainline Protestants were pretty suspicious of in America, um, that you know, these religious liberty cases become a much bigger deal.
2: I think you've also seen during President Trump's presidency this reminder of how important some of these religious priorities are for a large section of the American electorate. He made the appointment of conservative judges such a key part of his legacy, not just on the Supreme Court, but in the federal court system as well. And we see with the case this week, a few different things. One is this conservative court going to be very skeptical of lawmaking by executive fiat, not legislation. This is something that Alito has recently criticized quite in quite blistering terms. And then the other is this prioritization of religious liberty. Clarence Thomas has been very frustrated by recent opinions that he feels undermine religious liberty, most notably the 2015 decision that legalized same-sex marriage. And he, you know, he's written about how that decision enabled courts and the government to brand people. He he wrote to brand religious adherents who believe that marriage is between one man and one woman as bigots, making their religious liberty concerns that much easier to dismiss. And so I think that we have a bit of a preview of of two really big themes. One is on trying to defend religious, individual religious liberty. And the second is this propensity of the court to push back against overreach that they see happening throughout government. They think there are certain issues that should be handled by Congress. Congress, of course, won't handle them because they're deadlocked. But I think that those are two big things that we'll continue to see in the Supreme Court and in federal courts where... Donald Trump has appointed more conservatives.
1: All right, thank you both. We'll find out how the president of France has wound up in a row over religion in public life in just a moment. But first, a reminder, subscribing to The Economist is really worth it and it's dead easy. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. The US pages this week include a profile of Jake Sullivan, the man Joe Biden wants as his national security advisor, Elsewhere, you can read how reopening ski resorts is the latest split within the European Union and find out who's winning the billionaire's space race. That link again, economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the notes for this episode. At the same time the Supreme Court was ruling on religious freedom, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, decided to pick a fight with American media on the same topic. He's criticised coverage of the killing of Samuel Paty, a history teacher, in an apparent terrorist attack. Macron denies his tough response is Islamophobic, claiming instead that it's consistent with a French tradition of secularism, laïcité in French, that requires strict policing of the boundary between religious and public life. I asked Sophie Peder, The Economist's Paris correspondent, to explain...
5: There's a perception in France and right up to the top in the presidency that the uh, coverage of France ever since the beheading of this schoolteacher, which took place in October, has just been in their view, one-sided and a misunderstanding of a lot of the basis of the French model, and that's this this notion of laïcité. So it does reflect um, a really strong, almost angry desire on the part of the French to explain why they have this model and what it's all about.
3: So, Sophie,
1: can you try and explain what laïcité is and where the concept comes from? I mean, America also has an idea that religion and politics should be largely kept in separate spheres, at least in in legal terms, you know, the prohibitions on prayer in schools and and things like that. But laïcité is, is, is different to that. Where does the idea come from?
5: Yes it is different i mean it's, it's got the same basis of sort of secularism as a creed but the french version is very specific and comes from a particular point in french history at the turn of the 20th century it was a, an attempt to get the catholic clergy out of politics out of the army out of uh, out of public life uh, which led in 1905 to a, a law to separate religion and the state now the attempt at the time was was to get catholicism out of public life to this day you can't hold a nativity play in a state school and you certainly wouldn't ever have a french president sworn in on a bible or any other holy book but obviously, over the last 30 years or so, this constant attempt to find an accommodation about what exactly constitutes public life and the public sphere has been to do with the state and Islam. And that's where things have got complicated.
1: Sophie, as you say, more recently, the conflict in France over l'Este has been between Islam, which doesn't have a clear demarcation between church and state, uh, and the French government. And there have been particular arguments over things like the wearing of the hijab. France's critics often look at that and say this is intolerance. Why is that wrong? Or is it wrong even?
5: The difficulty is that because that the contentious issues tend to be where it comes to, to Muslim French people, that is where People accuse the French government of not just stigmatising Muslims, but of weaponizing laïcité in an attempt to fulfil political objectives. And that's where the debate gets really messy. So
1: if you, what do you make of those criticisms? I mean, I think Macron deserves a good deal of support from liberals around the world over this. Am, am I wrong about that?
5: It's very difficult to understand the French position unless you go back and you sort of follow this debate from the beginning. If you look at the first law, which came in in 2004, and there was a commission that was set up in order to try and work out what the problem was, what they noted and concluded at the end of this commission was that there were young girls who were being pressurised to wear the veil by a very conservative, if not sort of militant, Brand of of Islam, and that the schools in France needed to protect those young children from religious pressure. That's where the French find it so difficult to understand why this is seen as intolerant. The point is to protect children from illiberal influence. And, you know, if you talk to researchers or you talk to the French intelligence services, one has to understand that in France, the way they see it is that there is a war being waged on the internet uh, as much as anywhere else by a very radical form of Islam for the minds of young French people. And I think that it's that, that Macron is trying to protect France and young French people from.
1: Charlotte, I think there's a really interesting transatlantic misunderstanding here. Broadly speaking, if you're on the left of the political spectrum in America, you tend to be in favour of a more rigid demarcation between church and state. You tend not to like these Supreme Court judgments that find broadly in favour of religious liberty, right? On the other hand, if you're on the left in America and you look at how laicité works in France in practice, you sometimes get upset that it means preventing uh, Muslim girls from, say, wearing the hijab in French schools, which seems like a decidedly un-American sort of interference with civil liberties. Why do you think that confusion arises?
2: I think that in America, there is a comfort in some ways with not necessarily strict religious rules or requirements, but a certain religiosity that pervades American life that is distinct in the West. I mean, more than half of Americans at least say they pray daily. Whether they do is another question, but the fact that they say they do indicates that being pious, being religious, is integrated in American culture in a way that, frankly, it isn't in Europe. The, the comparative figure in Europe is 22%, so 55% of Americans say they pray every day, just 22% of Europeans do. Also, a majority of Americans say that religion is very important in their lives Um, Just 11% of people say the same in France, where Sophie is situated. So it's really a very different, broader attitude that Americans have. And I think that when you are American, it can be easy to forget just how distinct the American culture of religiosity is. Sometimes it can be cultural religion as much as actual religion, but that this is something that's integrated in American life in a way that's different, frankly, than particularly in France, but also elsewhere in Europe.
1: John Charlotte makes a really interesting point there about not just how religiously observant Americans are compared with the citizens of other rich Western European countries, but how sort of socially desirable being seen to be, you know, religious is. I mean, you have to go back to Abraham Lincoln to find an American president with no overt religious affiliation. And I think there have only been two in total, Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson.
3: That's wildly different to any other rich Western country. I think there's only been one member of Congress in recent memory who is identified as a humanist, and he's no longer in those. Pete Stark from California, who's no longer in Congress. I think that American conception of religious liberty involves the liberty to practice whatever faith you want as you see fit, provided it harms no one else without government interference. It also involves the government not propounding an official religion itself, although, of course, as you point out, every president has been religious and has sworn in on a Bible, but that is seen as a personal decision rather than a state or religious one. I think that where Americans have trouble understanding what's happening in France is because the French model involves restrictions of religious expression. It stems, as you point out, from the same sort of enlightenment idea, but it's characterized in different ways.
2: Your point on Lincoln is really interesting, John Prado, because it, it it is a reminder, you know, it's not just Republican presidential candidates who view an explanation of faith as being important to explaining to people who they are. Obama talked about in, in both Dreams from My Father, which was his book he wrote in 1995, and then also in 2006, which is a more obviously political book it was written 2 years ahead of his presidential run um, the audacity of hope he talks about the origins of his faith in detail and 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 how it shaped him and the religious commitment that he found and the home he found at a church on the south side of chicago and there's an excerpt that always struck me from that he writes that beneath that cross on the south side of chicago i felt god's spirit beckoning me i submitted myself to his will and dedicated myself to discovering his truth It's pretty hard to imagine, you know, Macron preparing for a presidential run writing something like that or feeling like it's important to write something like that.
3: American politicians' religiosity also means that religious people have had extraordinary influence. Billy Graham had very close relationships with both Democratic and Republican presidents, starting with Harry Truman. In January 1969, he stayed at the White House for two days in a row. He was there for Lyndon Johnson's last night and for Richard Nixon's first night the next day. But Really, the supercharging of evangelical politics didn't come until Reagan. He really saw that as as an advantage, perhaps because he was running against Jimmy Carter, who himself was quite religious, and he felt he needed to protect himself on that flank. And it really is since Reagan that white evangelicals have become the bedrock of, of the Republican Party.
2: I went to a Billy Graham crusade in Queens in 2005. It was actually his last crusade that he ever had. Billy Graham, of course, is this very famous evangelical. Um, He was probably the most famous ever evangelist, and he was called America's pastor. And he achieved this sort of mythic status, and presidents would speak with him and so forth. I went to the crusade because I was interested. I think I was trying to figure out how to write about evangelical voters. And just thousands of people came, um, 90,000 people came. And this is in New York, which is not really thought of as, as the heartland for evangelicals. And I think that these figures over time, they do wield both an important substantive political role in advising presidents, and then also they take on a sort of mythic role in American culture. And I'll be interested to see what happens during a Biden administration, who are the figures who emerge, because faith is an important part of Joe Biden. And I'll be curious to see how he tries to cultivate relations with America's evangelical community, as well as other Americans of faith.
1: That's really interesting, Charlotte. It also reminds me that we haven't written about megachurches in America for ages. There was a time when The Economist used to write about megachurches and in particular Rick Warren and the Saddleback Church fairly frequently. We, we haven't done that for a bit, so we, we'll have to make sure we do that next year. Thank you both. We'll be back in a bit to hear how Joe Biden's faith might influence his presidency.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: How might Joe Biden alter the mix of religion and public life? Raised a Catholic, he frequently speaks in religious terms. When he was running for president for the first time in 1987, he spoke about his faith with legendary interviewer David Frost. The interview was only recently released for the first time on the Frost Tapes podcast. Frost asks him how he coped with the grief of losing his first wife and baby daughter in a horrific car accident.
6: How long do you think it takes to recover from something like that? I think at a minimum, David, it takes um, one season of everything. Hmm. You must go through uh, the first Christmas The first birthday, the first movie, the first spring, the first autumn, the first snow, the first night alone in the same bed, uh, uh, the first uh, time you put the key in the door, the first time you get in the car and you smell that fragrance. uh, I think it's getting by every one of those things once. First. First. and Once you've done that, I think then you are able to begin to recover. You never forget. But I think that um, in time, it's hard to believe, but in time, the memory brings a, a smile to your lips rather than a tear to your eye. It's, a, it's like a back pain. You, you learn to live with it, and it doesn't become oppressive. You learn to adjust to it. You don't bend over the same way you used to bend over. Yeah. Yeah. And how, as a Catholic, as a Christian, as a believer, um, did you sort out God's role or non-role in all of this? And whether it was God's will or not. Or. Well, I, I'm not sure I'd like to talk about that, but uh, it's awfully personal. But let me just say that um, I had uh, the gravest doubts for about uh, a year. In my case, uh, my faith was sorely tested. A better man, a man with more faith, maybe wouldn't have. And I thought I had a lot of faith. But it came back, and it came back, uh, and it, it blossomed. Uh, but there was a period where I, uh, I could not fathom that there could be a God, and that could happen. Was there one event that brought, brought back the faith, or just? There wasn't an event. There was a, a constant occurrence, and that was looking in the, the eyes of my sons, who had survived, and thinking of the strength of uh, the woman that I had lost. I mean, I know used to always think, what would she do? But really, what really changed my life? Truly changed it with my Jill, my wife. She changed my life.
1: The full interview is well worth a listen. You'll find the Frost Tapes podcast wherever you found this one. John, Joe Biden's voice sounds so different, doesn't it? I I know it was a long time ago, but such a soft voice. He's now going to find himself at the head of a coalition which includes some people who, frankly, pretty skeptical of religion generally, and certainly skeptical of the idea that religion should play a big role in public life in America. Given that, how much do you think Joe Biden's Catholicism will be on display once he enters the White House?
3: It's on display as a fact of who he is, right? He talks about his faith often. He is going to become just the second Catholic president in American history, I think that religion probably is more important to most Democrats than it's generally thought of as being. If the backbone of the Republican coalition is white evangelicals, the backbone of of the Democratic Party, their most reliable voters are African Americans who who have higher rates of church attendance than white Americans, and I would suspect certainly than white Democrats. But faith operates in a different way, right? On the Democratic side, and I think among African Americans, and for Joe Biden himself, it's much more a sort of social gospel they pay attention to the to the to the works of Jesus to Jesus' attitudes toward the poor, so religion expresses itself differently for both parties, but I don't think it's markedly more absent from one than the other.
2: I think that point is so important. I mean, when I was based in Chicago and I was trying to understand Chicago's electorate, I spent almost every Sunday in different churches on the south and west side. And um, these were the the real hearts of those community and the hearts of political action. Um, But the way that that political action is manifest is very different. There are voters who, of course, care about what we would think of as traditional, quote unquote, evangelical issues, including abortion and and access to contraception and whether people should be obliged to, uh, to provide contraception or not, depending on their religious beliefs. But, you know, as John says, the issues of how to alleviate poverty, how to help take care of one's neighbor, as Barack Obama used to talk about, those are are religious issues to a big portion of the Democratic electorate who are among their most reliable voters.
1: Yeah, and it's also worth noting, I guess, that there's a big split within the Catholic Church in America between more conservative bishops in particular, who've really placed so much emphasis on abortion as being the single most important thing in American politics. And, you know, really, when it comes to bishops and Catholic priests giving advice to congregations, they've often said, you know, you just need to vote on abortion, and that ties their votes to the Republican Party. And another older tradition in the Catholic Church, which Charlotte alludes to there, a tradition that places a lot more emphasis on works, on giving money to the poor, and so forth. And that's the tradition that Joe Biden places himself in. So in 2015, he gave an interview in which he said that Pope Francis was, quote, the embodiment of Catholic social doctrine that I was raised with, the idea that everyone's entitled to dignity, that the poor should be given special preference, that you have an obligation to reach out and be inclusive. So that kind of Catholicism, frankly,
3: is very easy to reconcile with the core of the Democratic Party these days. And Catholics may have put Biden over the top. 51% of them voted for him in 2020, whereas only 45% voted for Clinton in in 2016.
1: And I guess, John, that conflict between those two Catholic traditions is going to be on display over the next four years, isn't it? I mean, you'll have Joe Biden as president, uh, who's only the second Catholic president in America's history, trying to push executive orders and executive actions because he won't have majorities in Congress. At least he probably won't if we assume that Democrats don't take the seats in the Georgia runoff. So you'll have a Catholic president pushing against a court that
3: has six Catholic justices on it. It does. It has six Catholic justices on it, many of whom have a distinctly different view of Catholicism than Joe Biden does. But I wonder how long the court will remain as it is now. I expect... Uh, Steve Breyer probably is not long for the court. He's 80 years old. I would think that even a Republican Senate would allow President Biden to nominate a justice early in his term. Where things get really contentious is what happens if another justice steps down. Uh, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas are both over 70. If Democrats do win those two seats in Georgia and Justice Alito or Justice Thomas or both of them retire, he could end up changing the balance of the court quite quickly, So the big question now is, is the court with Amy Barrett comprising the swing vote, sort of the strong religious liberty vote? Is she going to be a vote in the majority or in the minority? I don't think we'll know the answer to that for quite some time.
2: I guess I take a slightly different view. I mean, I think, you know, Supreme Court justices seem to like their jobs, and they'll hang out for a while if they can. So Justice Breyer might take the opportunity, having witnessed what just happened uh, after the death of Justice Ginsburg, he might realize that, you know, he does need to step down early if he's going to retire. But Alito and and Clarence Thomas, in reading some of their opinions recently, they've both been quite outspoken. I mean, Alito gave a speech to the Federalist Society criticizing attacks on religious freedom that was was much more strident than Supreme Court justices usually are in public speeches. And Thomas, too, in, in some of the opinions that he's written, He's been quite vocal in, in being worried about this. Furthermore, he actually has spoken, literally, in in court recently in a way that he hadn't done for his entire tenure as a Supreme Court justice. So I see some of these older justices maybe being invigorated with this new clout that they have, given how many conservative justices are on the bench, to really advance some of these concerns that they've had of the court overreaching, of of moving beyond its mandate and and trying to resolve issues that they think should be handled by Congress, and then also trying to defend the right of individuals and individual liberty. And, you know, in terms of how that's received on a national level, it's interesting because though David French is right that the nuns, the people who are unaffiliated, have risen in number, there's still only about a quarter of all American adults who identify as being religiously unaffiliated. Compared with about two thirds who say that they're christian, so you know i I think that Biden will have to be quite delicate in how he handles his different constituencies and and not wanting to uh infringe on religious liberties while also trying to advance the the promises that are core to to who he is as a candidate and who he will be as a president. Of course, he has to deal with the COVID vaccine if there was a huge, and the, and the COVID outbreak, if there was a huge uptick. you know, He has talked about more a more uniform national response um, that could come later this winter, and, and there might be some tensions with religious institutions there. So I think it's going to be quite dynamic for Biden in his first term. It'll be interesting to watch.
1: Well, talking about delicate management of contentious issues, I have a quiz for you guys before you go. We mentioned Billy Graham earlier. The first world-famous televangelist had an audience with no less than 12 American presidents, from Truman through to Obama. He was also close to the Queen. Graham first came to the attention of The Economist in 1954, when we reported on his first overseas crusade, as he called it, to London. He claimed to reach over a million Brits, filling Harringay Arena every night for three months. The paper noted that at the time, Harringay was more famous for racing. What kind of racing? Dog
3: racing.
2: Sure. Um, let me try to think of some other ra- animal. Odd wolf. <laughs> Bongo racing. Porcupine. I'd love to see a porcupine race.
1: It was indeed greyhound racing. Which American state has the most dog tracks? Florida.
2: New York.
3: It is Florida. John, you're ah. two for two.
2: How did you know that? What's up with Florida and dog tracks?
3: So I, I used to go to the dog track when I was in college. There was a track near... That, that's not really the lead in. Um, I don't want to admit that I'm a dog racing habituate. <laughs>
2: I was going to do a story <laughs> I on, on... I think you should. I think you definitely have you to. <laughs> yeah, you had to.
3: I like any sort of gambling, although I don't really do it. I quit when my older son was born, but I still like writing about it and studying it. And I was going to do a piece about, about dog racing. And I remember the fact that Florida had a lot of tracks.
2: Hmm, That sounds like a very elaborate alibi. Are you secretly running some kind of cockfighting ring during quarantine?
1: So two years ago, Florida had 11 of the 17 tracks in total in America, but soon there'll be none at all. Florida voted to ban greyhound racing in 2018. The three remaining tracks in the state must close by the end of this year. Palm Beach Kennel Club is holding a special New Year's Eve event with highlights from 88 years of racing and a greyhound adoption celebration.
3: If it were not COVID time, I would go down and do that story for you in a heartbeat.
1: You might come back with a greyhound. And COVID. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. If you're enjoying the podcast, please remember to leave us a rating and a review. It really helps to spread the word. You can get in touch via email. The address is radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week.